Hey folks, welcome to Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. Today I'm excited to introduce, maybe introduce, you may already know him, Tony Bossis. He's become a fast friend and he's deep into a world that I am captivated totally by. Uh, the intersection of psychology, spirituality, mysticism, death, uh, healing. He's a psychologist. And before I actually start off going off on that, let me read his bio and then we'll get to a number of uh, updates for the podcast and then we'll get started. So Anthony P. Bossis, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU's School of Medicine, conducting FDA-approved clinical research with the psychedelic compound psilocybin for over a decade. Dr. Bossis was director of palliative care research and co-principal investigator on the 2016 landmark clinical trial demonstrating a significant reduction in emotional distress from a single psilocybin session in persons with cancer, specifically a rapid decrease in depression, anxiety, hopelessness, and demoralization, along with improvements in spiritual well-being and the quality of life. He is study director and lead session guide on a clinical trial evaluating psilocybin-generated mystical experience upon religious leaders. His primary psychedelic research interests include the treatment of end-of-life existential distress and advancing our understanding of consciousness, meaning, and spirituality. Dr. Bossis is a trained supervisor of psychotherapy at NYU Bellevue Hospital Center and co-founder of the Bellevue Hospital Palliative Care Service. He's a faculty member for the Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research Certificate Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and for the Art of Dying Institute in NYC. He has a long-standing interest in comparative religion, mysticism, and the interface of psychology and spirituality. He maintains a private psychotherapy and consulting practice in New York City. And Tony, thanks for being here. Uh, this was a fantastic interview. I, uh, I've got links to, if you look below, I've got links to the chapter that I think is coming out. It may be out um, in the Handbook of Medical Hallucinogens. Uh, Tony's a fantastic guide, a fantastic uh, deep thinker. Uh, he's been thinking about these ideas a lot for a very long time, as you'll hear in the interview. And I just feel grateful to know him. So, Tony, thank you for your time, and thank you for uh, for the work that you put out into the world. Uh, you have a, a fun and loving nature about you, and uh, I feel grateful to know you. Uh, part of the thread here is when Brian Marescu, and if you watched uh, the last podcast with Mark Airy, um, I, I really Tony brought Mark into this uh, uh, into this uh, um, into this group, and and they've been talking for a long time. So I kind of I'm I'm a bit of a new man on. Uh, in the crew, um, but it's great to be among these um, healers, um, people who are reflective and think intentionally and deeply about meaningful aspects of our psychology, our, our health and our wellness, and our culture, and the ways in which human beings make sense of reality. So thank you, Tony. Uh, and then, of course, I referenced Mark. Check out that episode. And again, check out the episode with Brian Marescu. Okay, so for now, I'll just get to a couple of updates. Uh, if you're new to The Sacred Speaks, welcome. Uh, this is on video, and it's also on audio. You can check out The Sacred Speaks in any of the uh, podcast affiliates from Spotify to iTunes and Google Play, also on SoundCloud uh, and, and others. Um, and if you're listening to this, go check it out on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe. It, it really helps as, uh, as we're growing this community. Um, and if you're watching this, be sure to like and subscribe the audio um, and, uh, and check out the Instagram page, Facebook page, all those places. 
Um, thank you for participating. But most of all, check out the website at thesacredspeaks.com. I've got plenty of information about the project and how this, this part of the project fits in, fits in a larger whole. Uh, check that out uh, when you can. Uh, the Sacred Speaks is, uh, is supported uh, um, sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started a number of years ago. And uh, it's a fantastic space that we're growing in Houston. Um, check that out at the center for HAS.com. Uh, again, links will all be below. And, uh, and the music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, the class that I just taught uh, with Brian Marescu came and checked into was uh, fantastic. It was a great group of folks. Thank you for everybody being there. And if you'll check out the Young Center's website at younghouston.org, J-U-N-G, houston.org, you'll find another class that um, Mark Ryan and a number of other folks, including Pam Stockton, are teaching. They're going to go through, uh, it's more of a book study of Brian's book, The Immortality Key. Uh, check that out uh, with, with uh, the Young Center. Uh, it'll be a deeper dive. We were doing certain theoretical um, aspects of religion and psychology and spirituality, and, uh, and they're, they're really diving into the book. Uh, but again, thank you to all the people that participated in the class. Okay, other than that, um, I think that'll do it for now. Uh, we'll leave it there, and thank you, Tony, and all the participants, always. Thank you. I'm honored by everybody's presence, and I feel completely blessed to be doing what I'm doing. Uh, you're helping a geek do what, do what I love. So, uh, so thanks, and for now, we'll leave it there, and I'll bring you the interview. You and I have been kind of tracking the idea of this conversation for a while. I'm happy the day's here. Thanks for making the time, man. And I'm so happy to be here. I really respect the show you've been doing, and I'm uh, really delighted. I look forward to this, and I've been enjoying our conversation so far in our in our relationship. Me too, man. I'm, I, yeah, me too. So cool. It's let's, let's... Ten minutes now. We should have recorded that, but we'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> we got some time to uh, meander around together. Uh, so let's let's uh, uh, chart a course here. You know, you sent me your chapter. Uh, you, there was a Q and A you sent me. I watched your TED talk, and of course, fantastic fungi. I've I've watched all this, read all this. As we said earlier, that chapter you wrote is spot on. You you condensed and articulated so much of the what's necessary for people to understand about the world of entheogens or psychedelics. And I know you've done a lot of these conversations. So let's let's kind of pay homage to what we need to pay homage to, but then go off book wherever we need to go off, wherever we need to go off book. Um, but, but first, I think one of the valuable things about connecting with you is your understanding of both, as you just said, the mystical aspects of this, but also the scientific aspects of this. And I think in you is a great and powerful integration to be able to speak to both these. So we'll, we'll kind of mine in and out of both those uh, lanes throughout our conversation. Yeah, and that's a great those are great lanes to address because as we'll, we'll get into today, and I'll say a bit here in the, in the opening, actually, the field of psychedelic research and the landscape is just expanding rapidly. It really yeah. is. And, and I, I really, you know, it really behooves the, the researchers in the field to stay in touch with the, the heart of the matter, which many of the researchers feel is this mystical experience, but it can get sometimes lost in the broader conversation of, biology and you know this kind of marriage this tension between biological reductionism mm -hmm. uh, and a new prozac uh versus it's the memory of the insights of these experiences that go back millennia 
and you know we'll talk we'll do a deeper dive into this that maybe our, our birthright or our essence and our the foundations of the major religions versus just a new pharmaceutical therapeutic and that's a it's a real interesting and you know um two two lanes and i it does behoove us to kind of uh keep an eye on one while we uh, also cultivate the science so um yeah it, it's an interesting time for the field when when did you get into it I got into it really young. Um, I'm giving away my older age here. Um, probably 40 years ago, and, and you know, uh, like many of us, um, began with TM. You know, back in the yep. late 70s and early 80s, and when I was in college in the late 70s, um, and like countless others, um, really discovered the works of Watts and Jung in a very deep way, and and Huxley and all the all the all the perennial uh, philosophical writings and you know, smattering of religious readings. Um, and then, uh, and as a kid, actually, before that even, I, like a lot of kids, um, I think, um, I struggled with this death stuff, right? Lying in bed at night, wondering, you know, death, what happens and have that kind of anxiety. And I, it's, it's undoubtedly, it drove my interest in end of life and palliative care and, and the mystical experience and religion. Um, and then in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, came across all this, you know, literature on psychedelics, you know, discovered, you know, Huxley's writings on psychedelics and Alan Watts and, you know, Albert Hoffman. And then, um, you know, the research of the 60s. And of course, this is, you know, pre-internet. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible to look back within a lifetime. You know, the way we found this stuff was you went to the NYU Public Library and the microfiche and you'd find like, you know, newspapers or articles about this stuff from the 50s. Um, in early 60s that was around on, on psychedelics um, where you found those old books from Leary and, and Ram Dass and, and, uh, and, you know, you found them in the back of the, you know, the used bookstores, right? So everyone knows from that era, the way you found good books in the you know, 70s and 80s was um, you went to the used bookstore in your town. I grew up out of Long Island, so that's, you know, every town had a used bookstore. You went in, you went right to the back. You pass the front desk, you went to the very back of the store. And there was always a shelf where the, the title was, you know, philosophy, metaphysics, or you know, religion. And then you drop to your knees, which is always a good metaphor. And on the bottom shelf was where you found, you know, Watts and Huxley and all these great books. And that became one of our libraries from those days. Um, and, and that really that really changed me. I, I had been interested in the mystical experience at the core of the major religions. Um, I grew up Greek Orthodox, and we can speak about the specific religions today, and been very influenced by Zen and, and Vedanta, Hinduism as well. And, um, and that this mystical experience could, you know, provide not only insight into maybe the nature of self and, all, uh, and what is consciousness, but it could alleviate end of life distress in these patients that I was reading about. And that really triggered my interest in this as a career. Um, and I changed career. I was going to be I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, go to law school. Um, and it wasn't a good career move because in early 80s, there was no field, there was no psychedelic field, but I made the commitment. I'm not, you know, I want to pursue that. Um, and, you know, as it turned out, got very lucky and a lot of gratitude that I'm uh, along with many others doing, doing the research. So that was the beginning. Um, and that really, uh, I found it profound that these medicines were once used. At that point, they weren't around. So it was just like, how is this not known now? How is these discoveries and these, and these findings 
and the capacity for humans to tap into the mystical experience, which happens naturally as well. We'll, we'll get into that. But how are these medicines not available now? And how does this, why is this not part of the human conversation? And I still think about that because it's kind of been pushed out of the conversation. The whole mystical experience um, conversation is pushed out. You know, Alan Watts talks about that. Um, so that kind of set the course. Um, and then pursued, you know, my graduate degrees. And for a while, there was nothing happening in the field, clearly, and became a psychologist and continued those explorations of Jung and everything else and consciousness. And then, you know, after 2000, late 2000s, we began to do the work. It, I got lucky in that regard. So that well, was kind of hang, hang on, you're skipping over something that I think is important, because you're talking about coming into this field in a time where a lot of prohibition was going on in this field. And there was a lot of propaganda out there to scare people about what psychedelics or entheogens are all about. So you, you must have had a great deal of grit to be able to navigate and kind of, uh, I guess the real question I'm trying to get at is, how were you exploring these ideas in an academic context when there was a lot of tension around these ideas? Were you getting shit from your your uh, your professors, or were they saying this is bullshit? Don't do that. What was the what was the kind of emotional and psychological and sociological space at that time? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There was no landscape. There was no academic discipline. I didn't speak about it openly in you know my educational training. Uh, I take an off number of years and explored it on my own, like many of us did in those days. Um, and there was always small circles of people who who spoke yeah. about this. But yeah, it wasn't part of the culture. It, these drugs had been completely pushed off the, the cultural landscape and the academic clinical landscape. Um, when I began graduate school, I was, you know, some teachers who were, who were supportive of it, but I, you know, danced around the edges. So you do research or you speak about meditation and consciousness and you didn't quite always talk about the psychedelics as, as a possible avenue. But yeah. looking back, it just, you know, it's, it's a bit, you know, looking back, it's moving that, you know, cause I, like all of us in the field and, you know, and you as well, when you have that passion, when you when you discover that, oh my God, this is an, an available possibility for people to have to explore that experience. It, it really could change your 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 you know the path you set. Um, and looking back, it did. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm grateful. I'm not I'm not a lawyer. Nothing against lawyers, <laughs> um, uh, but it worked out well. And I, and it's because of that discovered that entire you know or i would have been in that i thought I'd maybe get an mdiv or, or be a priest or something like that but yeah. it had to be around that topic of spiritual religious experience um which again is the topic uh, these these compounds were researching I don't, I don't think many of us don't categorize them as drug studies per se yeah because uh, the change the changeable uh, the, the the change agent is the experience uh, what we call, you know, we will define today peak or mystical experience. Um, the great Maslow talked about peak experience. And these compounds, you know, temporarily shift the brain uh, to, to temporarily give access to that incredible uh, larger view of the landscape of consciousness that apparently has inherited in that a lot of, in, a lot of, um, of who we are. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's the topic, and so I, I, that's why I think this field dovetails well with philosophy and comparative religion and yeah. and, and all that. So, so what was what were you researching when you were doing your doctorate? So my 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 PhD was not around this these medicines. My yeah. my dissertation was on schizophrenia. Um, so uh, it was not around this. I was interested in it. I was exploring it on my own. 
um, and making connections uh, to people who are doing this as well. Um, again, much of that's pre-email. Um, and it's not until the early 2000s that uh, it began to percolate within the healthcare landscape. But then in 2006, um, I'd, you know, before that, I'd written letters to people and trying to get things going. And it was just really very difficult for obvious reasons. I had some attempts at where I worked at Bellevue early on and the, the landscape wasn't really set yet. Uh, and then in 2006, um, the, the Hopkins team uh, produced their, their great paper on kind of replicating the Good Friday experiment. We'll get to that today and showing that, you know, psilocybin could produce in healthy volunteers a, a mystical type experience. Um, and so that I think opened the doors a bit um, and the floodgates. And then we you know, got approval from the hospital and FDA. And that was the cancer study that was published in 2016. It took almost a decade to get that out. Um, so, but yeah, no, the early days was not um, about psychedelics. It was uh, just a conventional clinical psychoanalytic contemporary subjective in New York City psychotherapy uh, kind of paradigm. But on the edges, always, you know, diving deep into Jung and the religious, uh, the religious models, uh, which I still think are profoundly important. You know, religion's taken a big hit. It has for centuries. And there's a lot of uh, ways why it went off the rails and a lot of danger has been done. Um, but I, I, you know, the, those six silos of the great religions and, and others, I guess, um, are important, uh, are important containers as ways to connect to the ineffable, um, to go beyond the framework or to paraphrase Paul Tillich, the religion beyond religion, you know, I mean, uh, versus just take each one as, as the end point. Uh, so uh, that was how it unfolded and just grateful now for uh, for over a decade now, we're, we're deep into the science of psychedelics and hopefully more than the science, also the, uh, the reason why it works and the, the, the impact on consciousness and spirituality. Yeah, and I, a phrase comes to mind, Tony, as I'm listening to you talk about this, and it's, uh, if you want to understand something about life, understand something about death. Yeah. And, and that's been a, a, a major factor of your, your research. W when did that start? Yeah, so that, that, that remains the primary focus. I, the field's really expanding, as I said a few minutes ago, and um, the two, two avenues that really engage, engage my interest is one, end of life, and working with people who are dying uh, with the medicine. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. And the other is just the nature of spirituality, um, uh, building upon that great Good Friday experiment uh, from 1962 with uh, Walter Penke. Um, what they looked at, you know, the impact of psilocybin on healthy volunteers. Houston Smith was a volunteer in that famous study who famously said uh, a spiritual experience doesn't necessarily make a spiritual life. I and mean, again, it's about what you do with it, not just the experience mm -hmm. on its own. The end of life um, path I had been interested in, as I said, as even as a kid, death and dying and then existential uh, framework and like so many of us was influenced by all the existential writers and, and later on Yalom and all those works um, and then came across that research that was done in the early you know 60s with the one LSD experience from these early studies at Spring Grove uh, people like Stan Groff and, and Bill Richards and others were doing that could profoundly reduce the the anxiety people had uh, in their terminal cancer diagnosis um, vis-a-vis -vis that 
profound mystical experience that, you know, and, and let me, I should have found that in a moment, but let me just finish my sentence. Um, and it, it just was the perfect application for my interests, um, both personally, because as a kid, I just struggled with death and dying, and then just interest in existential work and spirituality. Um, and I worked in palliative care for years. I had founded a palliative care clinic at Bellevue Hospital and, and, and still work with people with advanced diagnoses. Um, uh, and uh, so that became our first uh, study at Johns Hopkins and our team at NYU. We did a clinical trial looking at the uh, impact of one dose of psilocybin in people with um, mostly with advanced cancer. Some didn't have advanced cancer. It might have been a remission, but the, the key inclusion criteria was to have had a significant um, psychological uh, suffering secondary to it. So anxiety, depression, or mm -hmm. some D, at that point DSM-4 diagnosis. Um, and that was the paper we published in 2016 uh, together at Hopkins at NYU, and which you know made a big splash. It was one of the, uh, the the first time, in addition to Charlie Grove's paper out of UCLA a couple of years earlier, that that was done in almost half a century. Um, and uh, the 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 first, the only two primary indications to come out of the first wave of research that really wild period, and I want to come back to you later with you because it's such an interesting chapter from the 1950s and 60s, early 70s, were two main indications. One was alcoholism, uh, which, you know, many people don't know. Bill Wilson had taken LSD many times, and that became a, that experience, that peak mystical and numinous experience became his, um, cultivated his insight that a spiritual experience could serve as an ablation to want to drink. And even Jung spoke about that. You know, if you merge with the, the greater good, uh, it would maybe uh, mitigate the need for the more lesser ways to, to merge with all that is. Um, and the other avenue was this terminal cancer. And those are the two main clinical, the only two clinical pathways to come out of that first wave. So it was really humbling to pick up on those great giants of the 1960s and 50s and early 70s and continue that work, which we're still continuing today. Um, and it remains for me uh, such a, a remarkable application of the medicine. And if we, yeah, if we can mitigate end of life distress, which we all potentially will go through, might go through, um, just an incredible gift. And we'll, we'll dive deeper into this. Even Ralph Metzner, the great pioneer in psychedelic medicine, passed away a couple of years ago, said to his, to his dying days that, the most incredible application of this was to help those who are um, who, who, who are dying, um, and you know, often cited the Lucidian mysteries in ancient Greece and other uh, models where these medicines could give a glimpse, maybe, into the nature of life and death, and be more present if we could re remove that awful existential end of life terror. Mm -hmm. It's ironic that religion, religions, other than I've, one of those books, by the way, that I went into a used bookstore and I found, I went to the very back, I found the uh, the book that Leary and uh, Richard Alpert and uh, Metzner wrote, uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, second old experience, right. Yes, yeah. So you started to talk about the used bookstore, I thought, shit, and it was a first edition too, so I've got a... <laughs> No, no, I, I understand. I, I think I got my version of that back in the same way. It was a, it was a, um, a, a book that was written, as you know, uh, as a um, 
they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead um, uh, about the Bardos and what might happen to the to the soul after death, and they made a kind of a metaphorical uh, arc about the psychedelic experience, a loss of you know, eagle death, kind of the parallels. And um, an interesting note in history that Laura, when Aldous Huxley was was dying, who was a who was a, um, uh, an influencer of all three of those guys. Um, when he yeah. when he was dying, he she, she read to him from a pre-published manuscript that hadn't been published yet, and reading to him about as he was passing away, and actually he requested she inject him with LSD as he passed away. Reading from that book, go towards the light, go towards the love, and reading from the manuscript. Um, but yeah, the, the <laughs> see today's kids John don't know about the uh, bottom shelf of the used bookstore. I I guess. You know, while the it, it's funny because I read your chapter, and I want to just provide people an understanding of the kind of death that we're talking about. I want to read this little paragraph from your um, utility of psychedelics and palliative care. This is an excerpt from I'm assuming the yeah the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You are going forward and up. You are going towards the light, willing and consciously. You are going. You are doing this beautifully. You are going towards the light. You are going towards a greater love, light and free, forward and up. You are going towards the best, the greatest love, and it is so easy, and you are doing it beautifully, going forward and up towards the light, into the light, into complete love. Mm. Yeah, so that, that I was hearing you say those words. So those are Laura Huxley's words, reading to her husband as he lay on the bed passing away, reading from that book. Um, I get a chill as you hear you say them, and you know, it's and it goes on for pages. I mean, I often, I mean, I have them here so I was going to read them to you today, but you, I'm, I'm so glad you read it. Um, it goes on for pages. Oh, that's a good book, by the way, to recommend, and I'll drop some books along the, the journey today. This time, ta- this timeless moment by Laura Huxley profiles her experience with that, wow. and she's reading that for hours. Um, uh, go towards the love, go towards the light. You're doing this beautifully. Keep going, honey. Keep going. Very touching. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And historically, interesting note, that was the same day JFK was assassinated in Dallas. She, she famously talks about coming out of the bedroom. Uh, Aldous had finally passed. And, all, and he was a very well-known person uh, in those days in, in California and throughout the world. And the living room were all his friends and some pretty well-known people. And they were all huddled around the TV set. And she writes that she was thinking that she's approaching the crowd to tell them he just passed. Huh, that's a bit odd. They're all watching TV. You know? uh, what had happened was um, JFK had just been shot and killed. Um, and she writes about that, how these are two great men who uh, both were dedicated to kind of helping push humanity along a bit. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, moment in time. Well, we... Certainly, Westerners, we tend to have this, we project this process into an afterlife. And I, I don't want to get into a theological discussion necessarily, but, but we don't have the kind of, I think what we tend to do is fear death as opposed to discuss openly what kind of death an individual would like. That's a taboo conversation that we we want to separate and push off to the side and then try to have a fantasy that we can prolong our life longer than we we probably need to. So the the death conversation to me that you're looking at 
aside from psychedelics, which I think are, of course, valuable and necessary, but to reanimate and, and bring into the foreground a conversation about death openly, I think it's one of the things that you're doing that is of such importance. And I appreciate the, the means by which you're doing it, because I, again, I think that we don't have enough of an orientation not like this, not like, and I'm pointing to my used book section right down here. Not like that. You know? <laughs> Running easy, look at them. <laughs> <laughs> down there, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, you're, you're so right. And, uh, you know, such gratitude for the people who are advancing this, this cause for a while now. Um, it still is, as Ernest Becker famously wrote, that, you know, like the, the final taboo, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, um, death and dying and it's incredible the level of denial I mean, here we are and you, know, you have this in you as well as me and most people despite knowing fully well we're going to cease to exist there's that kernel of peace well no, not me i mean you're you know that that denial um that uh can be within um human experience the, the good news is as um it's getting better right a little bit um you know in the last 15 years 15 20 10 to 20 the hospice movement the part of care community and the culture there's been books now on a top you know new york Times bestsellers are on death and dying and there's death doulas and death cafes and so you know we're slowly inching our way towards a uh, a renewed healthier cultural conversation about death um you know with giants like kubler ross and others laying the seeds you know yeah. many years ago but it remains the, the final taboo and it's um Met, you know, the healthcare industry and medicine fell short, right? Um, you know, with the turn of the last century, um, with the modern, with the medicalization of healthcare um, and all its incredible discoveries, came sadly the uh, the moment or the the period where they began to push death beyond closed doors, you know, behind the closed curtain. It wasn't part of the the daily life as well as birth, you know. So. Right. You know, for years, and even in the 1800s here in America, and people died in their homes. People died in their homes, and the body laid there for for days. And it was part of the village experience and the family experience. And throughout history, there's various ways that death was part of the community. Um, and only with with you know modern you know the medicalization of death uh, did it become kind of behind closed doors. Um, and then birth as well, you know, you, until the mid-century, the, the husband could come in the room finally, or the partner, but that wasn't part of the early, uh, as if, you know, there was no before or after, just <laughs> just this, where we come from, where we're going, we're not talking about, <laughs> we're just here. So uh, that is changing, it's still a long way to go. Um, and um, we're better at chemotherapy, John, we're better at, pain control, there is still a paucity of tools to address the end of life distress that we can go through, that people go through. There are meaning-making psychotherapies that are cultivated that help, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I think form the, the set the table for these medicines in that the two most, I think, and again, we'll come to the criteria in a little bit, um, features they, they generate are, are meaning-making and, and transcendence. Um, but we don't die well in America. We still don't die well. Um, survey after survey shows most people want to die at home with loved ones, with a sense of completion and as best we can. And um, yet many people still die in ICUs and in 
you know, trying to advance the quantity of life for a little while longer versus um, a full appreciation for the quality of, of life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but hats off to the entire palliative care and hospice communities. And there is a change, as you've seen, as people have seen in the bookstores and TV shows, we're, we're getting there on a very cultural level and healthcare is also catching up. And, um, you know, not too long ago, you wouldn't talk about that in medical school. There wasn't training, wow. <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, palliative care teams existed for a while in hospital, um, but the doctors called you at the very last minute, you know, like almost deliver the bad news for us um, versus coming earlier to help the patient along this final trajectory uh, of, of life. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you for bringing that out. We're getting there, but it, it remains a big, a big hole in, in um, our human conversation that we, we die and how can we make that more meaningful? How can we make it less painful? And how can we bring it into the circle of, um, into the cycle of what life is? And which again, I mean, to circle back to religion, which we're going to be dancing around all day, I get a, I get a sense. Right. That's probably the foundation of the major religions to help people understand or cope with the, that we're not always here. And also based on experiences of the religious founders or the mystics or however they came to be, was often about what might happen. You said something earlier that uh, is, is a phrase I want to tease out a little bit. You said the medicalization of healthcare. That seems, I, I, a lot of people might go, huh? Well, isn't healthcare medicalized already? Tell me more about that. Yeah, no, that, that's a big part of the conversation. So there's obviously clearly um, advantages to the medicalization of healthcare. We have modern medicine, we have. Uh, antibiotics and, and pain control and, and discoveries. Um, but the medicalization of, of uh, death and dying uh, and of healthcare pushed those conversations out behind closed doors. Um, it removed you know, part of the human experience of the life cycles, including the end of life, um, focusing solely on you know, the medical applications to prolong life. And um, that, that was when it took it in the early 1900s. Um, you know, give or take a period of time where death and our views upon death and our conversations shifted uh, into this new paradigm, which we're now seeing change. We're now seeing a return to, more than a return, we're seeing a healthy attitude towards end of life. Again, all these incredible conferences and the field itself is, is expanding and the field itself is accepting psychedelic model in a very accepting way. Um, as a way to alleviate end-of-life distress, which I am very heartened by, and we're getting full support by palliative care and hospice communities. You know, could this could this model, could the psychedelic treatment model, be an application not for everyone, but for many who are dying to um, to have that to, to relieve the end-of-life suffering that is so common? You know, it, as I sent you the other, I know you already, I would imagine you already had it, but I sent you the article recently about the, uh, how Rick Perry down in Texas is approaching the Capitol and, and saying, which is, I mean, obviously as somebody who's down in Texas, that was odd and also symbolic and an interesting move that, that, um, you know, projections noted here, but my projections onto that situation, he wouldn't be the candidate that I would imagine is going to the Capitol. Um, but uh, that's certainly, an, un, I think, an evidence of a massive shift that's 
that's coming when we have folks that have in large part really pushed up against the idea of subjectivity and the importance of the imagination. Because through a byline that I think that you and I are going to really track is is just that. It's it's where's where does the imagination sit? You know, here you start doing a dissertation on schizophrenia, looking at what are the hallucinations, what are the what's happening in the in the subjectivity of an individual who is schizophrenic. Psychedelics, you're you're talking a lot about how important the experience is. So we're we're having this line of people, which is I, I think one of the conflicts that Freud and Jung really got themselves into. We have this massive schism between medicalizing uh, analytic work and mysticizing, I guess, uh, analytic work that really Jung was doing. Um, so yeah, we're we're in a radical period of time. It's pretty amazing. It is amazing. I it does feel like, doesn't it, that we're you know it, it's hard to know where you are in history when you're in it. You can't get a right. bird to view of where you are, and you know each generation might think we're at an incredible point, and many, most generations are. Yeah. But this does have a feeling, and many people are of course saying this that we're at some type of inflection point, that there seems to be some kind of paradigm shift um, in how we understand so many things. And, uh, and of course, the threats to human life and climate change and uh, political models, and there's so much going on that, uh, you know, this virus has been an incredible, you know, Dharma lesson for all of us about the impermanence of life and the fleeting nature of this existence and how we are all connected that um, psychedelics teach us literally connected i mean we're spreading this virus but we also could spread other positive things through our interconnected interbeing as Tiglan Han would call it um but also uh, th this period seems to and i think you're, you're alluding to this also approaching this how do we revisit what is consciousness yeah uh which we you know seems to be the final frontier of science which of course young young beautifully played around with um, more than played around with that's an insult to young <laughs> explored. Um, but what is consciousness? Where is consciousness? Um, that seems, you know, the hard problem, as they call it, that seems to be the the final frontier. Um, and, and things like near-death experiences and, and meditative experiences and spontaneous mystical experiences mm -hmm. um, that we're addressing today, and psychedelic generated mystical peak experiences, you know, could they be tools in helping us? map out the phenomenology of, of consciousness. Um, you know, there's two ways of seeing consciousness, at least two primary ways. One, it's generated by this incredible, incredible brain function we have. And this incredible thing generates our consciousness, whatever that is. I mean, you, you know, you're picturing something now in your head. Where's that picture? I mean, it's all so ineffable. The, the other pathway being addressed now in serious ways. Um, you know, called non-local consciousness is that it might be even more remarkable than that. It might exist, the source of consciousness may exist in part outside biology and that somehow way beyond our understanding, clearly at this point in our evolution, the brain somehow mediates with or interfaces with whatever that is uh, and brings in all this experience, but it really is um, the final frontier in psychedelics. Uh, we hope we'll have a role in, in, in understanding that. Um, let, let me quickly just, uh, if I could, John, if you don't mind, um, itemize quickly, there's only a few features. What what I keep referring to as mystical experience, because I, I don't want to leave the listener. Um, 
and this has been the heart of the research actually, and it's been shown that the greater this experience, when this experience is endorsed, we see the greater clinical outcomes, particularly in the end of life study. So people in the cancer trials who had a mystical or peak experience had a greater reduction in anxiety, depression, demoralization, hopelessness, and a greater sense of spiritual well-being. And simply, and it builds, we build it proudly upon the early measures developed in the early 1960s by Walter Penke and Bill Richards, who's still a mentor and a teacher to us all. One is a sense of unity that in this experience, the subjective experience that everything is connected. All things are, are, are connected. All is one. Um, profoundly felt. The sense of um, sacredness, uh, awe, humility, wonder, you know. Uh, the noetic quality, a, coin, a, a, a term coined by William James, that one is encountering ultimate reality. In the hundreds of cases uh, in the modern psychedelic era, as well as the, the first wave half a century ago, it's very rare, I've never heard it, uh, a volunteer say, um, oh, that was just a temporary drug effect. That was some, it was kind of cool and I saw everything as one, but they don't. The experience speaks with such authority that what they tell us and what they write about and what we're seeing in the results of the research, that was ultimate reality. That's part of reality. Whatever this is, is part of that. And that might be even the greater uh, ultimate reality. And it's, um, it's an incredible thing to hear over and over again, because that glimpse, that experience was often laced for many people with insights that consciousness continues or some very powerful spiritual insights about around self and death and the nature of all this. Um, uh, ineffability is another feature that it's, this transcends language. It's impossible to speak about. Although I have to say they do a great job in writing beautiful journals about their experience. And finally, a feature that is very important, uh, and it seems to me really one of the most important ones is this sense of transcendence. People report in these experiences and in naturally occurring mystical experiences that, are, that I wanna talk about in a moment. Um, the sense of transcending time and space as you know, far out as that sounds, transcending this body, this full sense of transcendence that we see in meditation spontaneously. Um, and, and for the person who's dying, I mean, whose body's beginning to fail. So in two weeks, one year, six months, whatever it is, this body will stop working. And of course the association with that is, well, then I stop working, I cease to be. Insights cultivated in that transcendent experience often are in, these, in this research that whatever self is, is more than this body. Mm -hmm. I'm not just this cancer. I'm not just this body. There's something more enduring about who I am, about what I am, self is. What a gift. What a gift. Um, you know, and people will say, appropriately so, well, that's just a, a temporary effect and that's not really true or not. I mean, above my pay grade to really verify it one way or the other, but um, what a gift for these for these people who are, um, and it's spoken with conviction. So those are the features. Um, and, and importantly, those occur without psychedelics as well. I mean, it's clear that psychedelics um, is one way, a fairly reliable way when done properly in the proper set and setting. And we can talk about how we do the trials that can generate that, but 
as Abraham Maslow wrote about beautifully and others have, these experiences occur naturally throughout human history. Mm-hmm. Mystics and saints and everyday people have these experiences. Maybe not the three or four hour one you see in a psychedelic experience, but these glimpses. Um, children have them. A recent Pew study showed 49% of Americans report having some kind of peak of religious experience. It seems to me we're wired for meaning. It really does. Why we're so separate from that is a question, again, above my, my pay grade, but it seems humans are wired for these experiences uh, that form the foundations of the great traditions. Um, and that's remarkable. Why is that? Why are we wired for, why would that be? If you know, how, from an evolutionary perspective, why would that be? And it, it's just an incredible um, notion or, or, or insight. And these medicines now in a reliable setting can generate that. It is magical. And reduce okay. this in this situation, reduce end of life distress to incredible insights. Um, and love is also often very part of that insight that it's all the ground of being, you know, is love. Um, uh, but now we're seeing this in other applications and smoking cessation and depression and eating disorders that, that which that one isn't published yet, um, you know, addiction. So, you know, does this transcendent function, as Maslow called it, um, not only have insight. Uh, opportunity for insight into who we are, which is just remarkable, and the nature of religion and spirituality, does it have clinical applications and therapeutics? And here we are at this new re-emergent of the medicine, um, of the work, and it's um, exciting, exciting. So, and I got two, two plays I want to just, this is what's on my mind right now. The idea of spiritual bypassing, that that these are substances that somehow cheat uh, you know, what somebody could cultivate through 10 years of meditation. What do you say to that idea? Uh, uh, I understand the question. I once gave a talk and uh, someone said, isn't, isn't that cheating? Isn't that, you know, um, you know, and, and I'll leave a lot open, you know, uh, you know, uh, a lot of mystery here, but, you know, Walter Stace famously said the psychedelic, generated mystical experience isn't like a mystical experience. It is a mystical experience. So, you know, I think in fairness to the question, one, it, it does seem these experiences mirror specifically and, and almost identically the naturally occurring ones. I mean, the mystical experience scale I, I read out to you before was built upon the history of naturally occurring mystical experiences. You know, Stace and others gleaned from James' work and Stace and all the major religions. What, what were the common themes? What were the common motifs that we see in these great experiences? Um, great book, by the way, and that is Richard Maurice Buck's 1902 Cosmic Consciousness, a, a classic in looking at naturally occurring experiences. So this is built upon when they occurred naturally. Um, is it cheating? Is it a, you know, is it bypass? It, it can be, and that's where the problems are. You know, Houston Smith famously said, I said to you, I think before you went on record, that a spiritual experience doesn't necessarily make a spiritual life. It's what you do with it. It's the application or the integration of it. So yes, you, there's another quote somewhere. You could be a stinker before a mystical experience and still be a stinker afterwards. Um, if it didn't change you at your heart, if it didn't change your fruits, you, you know by your fruits. Um, so yes, it could be a bypass. Yes, there's a whole literature on the inflation that can occur during this experience, mm-hmm. the sense of narcissism or grandiosity, and, and that would be the bypass. That wouldn't be doing the work. Um, so yes, 
it is applicable. And then no, in the sense that these these could be genuine peak experiences that have genuine genuinely inform someone's path or or personal experience, and then generally changes their life, their relationships, how they view life, how they view their spirituality. And then it becomes, uh, you know, that that's I think what they're there for. These aren't recreational <laughs> or or fun compounds. I mean, I know people have fun on them, but they're pretty serious, meaning making. Uh, and often difficult experiences. So um, it can be used that way, but in its best, they're not. In its best, it really is, I think, generating a, a true spiritual uh, path if the person applies it and doesn't take it for kicks at some rave. If it stays in that kind of isolated experience, then um, yeah, that, that's not what these are. I don't think they're for kicks. Um, and I think religion has a real purpose here. I mean, I think these, the containers of religion wonderful containers or frameworks or whatever we call them to help us connect to the ineffable, to help us connect to that experience through symbols and scripture and techniques and mantras and drawings and, and mystics and leaders. Um, it seems that's what they're there for, to help once you've had the experience or even without the experience to connect to the ineffable, that they're not the end point. You know, what's the Zen thing, the finger pointed at the moon, it, you know? And um, so I think religions have a, a really a function, a wonderful function of housing these experiences ideally maintaining it and then helping helping uh connect to it and with all those beautiful frameworks and also by your fruits then doing the doing good uh living a life that's hopefully compassionate um so versus you know the silos which is the sad part of religion the mystical experience is the generator of all the major religions either by one person or a group of persons over a period of time but over time, the mystical experience got a bit squeezed out. And so you're left with these beautiful silos with beautiful frameworks and language and scripture and gorgeous readings. And But if the mystical ground is now being pushed out of it and you just left with the silos, then you're missing kind of the the, the core of how, how they began in the first place. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's a long answer to say, um, yes, it could be used as a bypass. Yes, it could be used as a way or just used and not really the fully the full uh, impact is integrated, but they could also be um, as someone say sacraments to help support and inform that. Um, so it's, it's both and people, you know. And yeah. our, our our hope is that with the research, these don't you know these don't just become another just a, a Prozac or just a, and certainly not just for kicks. I don't get how they're you know for I get how they're for kicks, but that certainly isn't the way these were developed for throughout the centuries. Only in the last century do we see. Um, and that's the whole 1960s kind of cultural debate where they use, you know, recreationally as well. Um, but for millennia, the medicines and more importantly, the experiences are part of a, a life path, right? Yeah, it's, it, what I can't understand with that spiritual bypass thing is that any image or any substance, it just depends on how we approach it. Sex can be power. Sex right. can be connection. Sex can be pleasure. Sex can be reproduction. Food can be anxiety reduction. It can be art. You know, it can. So, it, I, I, I just know that given the, and this is kind of where I was going with that. Given the current context that we're coming out of, where there was a pretty repressive, um, collective, uh, repressive approach to psychedelics, we are we are left with that kind of fear 
This is just a what Jung called a nothing but. That's nothing but a spiritual bypass, which I, I totally reject. I, I, I think that um, one needs to look at why, when, how, where they are using anything yeah. or connecting with anything, and then they'll be more self-aware as a result. So the the thing that we can do now, maybe you, you, you intuit where you think we need to go, but I think it'd be cool to start to pick up that thread you were talking about, 1950s, and kind of bring us up to date, maybe a summary of your summary in your chapter, and uh, and then we can kind of explore current contexts. Great, great, thank you, and and thanks for your comment. You're right; it's how it's used, and you know, and, and there's a mystery to all as well. I mean, one final thing before we get into the beautiful timeline, because the 1950s was a great, it's a great chapter in the history of the work. Um, we don't want the takeaway to be, well, people have this with conviction, know where they're, you know, what's happening. That often is the case. People do say, I had this profound insight that this happens to consciousness or this is what nature of reality is. But often it's also surrendering to the yeah. mystery of it all, um, truly surrendering. Um, I mean, one of the guidelines we give, uh, and I'll get to this when I discuss, describe the trials, is to trust, trust the moment, trust yourself, trust consciousness, and go into the unfolding um, that we don't know. Um, but there's this conviction and I'm safe and I'm being held even within the unfolding mystery and I don't have to know. I mean, the, you know, the cloud of unknowing, we have all these, all these, all these um, uh, uh, books and teachings of not knowing. There's, there's a great Zen tale about death that I love um, where the Zen student says to the Zen teacher, uh, Master, what happens to us after we die? The Zen teacher says, I don't know. And the student says, how can you not know? You're the Zen teacher. He goes, that's true. But I'm not a Zen, I'm not a dead Zen teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, right? And that's the beauty of, of Zen, right? Um, and of the apophatic theology of Christianity, the, the, the not knowing. So... Thanks for teeing that up. The, the, the research history is just wonderful. And for those who are engaged in this new, what they call a renaissance, which, you know, I'm not sure if the word applies 100%, but or reemergence, which I like a little better. Um, the first wave was so interesting. And I invite people to look into it. So in the late 1930s, Albert Hoffman's discovers LSD by mistake. And I'll do a quick walkthrough. Please. In 1943, he accidentally ingests some that takes it intentionally and realizes, oh man, I've discovered, a, a, I've, I've stumbled upon a profoundly powerful molecule. He was on a bike ride, right? So on the, on the, yes, on one of the early trips, he he rode his bike and it's called, it's coming up actually, it's called Bike Day now and this <laughs> April 19th um, or 20th, April, I think it's coming, it's coming up next week. Um, uh, this week, um, I know we're on tape here. Uh, and um, he realized that he discovered this, you know, uh, and quickly became intrigued by it, this profound altered state that it was dark and troubling and then became very uh, uh, full of uh, enlightening insights. Um, and uh, it, it was transient, it ended, it passed, and he was back in normal consciousness. Um, uh, and that began a real heady, you know, decade or two. Um, quickly, he had synthesized LSD, he used LSD for, for research. There was text in neurology and... Um, uh, it began to be used in, in a very famous, lovely chapter in, um, in Canada by Humphrey Osmond, who was a Brit who came to Canada, uh, began to use LSD with alcoholics. And that began, and other psychiatric applications. And that became a real 
foundational piece of this incredible trajectory. So in the 50s, you have LSD being used in alcoholism. Uh, then in 1957, Gordon Wasson, who was a, a banker uh, for JP Morgan and an amateur mycologist along with his wife, Valentina, they'd heard about the, the magic mushroom, which until now, John, is not known in the West, is not known in, in America and in Europe. Uh, but he'd read about this magic mushroom. And he went to Mexico and he met Maria Sabina, a healer, and participated in a mushroom ceremony. Had a profound effect on him. Wrote about it in a very well-known Life magazine article in 1957. That was read by Tim Leary, Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass, Ralph Metzner. And that kicked off the whole Harvard thing uh, in a profound way, in earnest. And Albert Hoffman, who had discovered LSD, began to synthesize psilocybin from the mushroom. And so now you have psilocybin and, and LSD being used in some research inquiries. Um, and out of that grew those two main clinical indications, research with LSD, primarily, there was also some other medications being used, but primarily LSD with terminal cancer at Spring Grove um, in Maryland, and also for alcoholism. Concurrently, these drugs were legal so it was being used in LSD psychoanalysis throughout the country, LA, New York, primarily big cities, London. Cary Grant, and I invite the listener to Google Cary Grant, LSD. You'll see just pages. There's a movie out called Becoming Cary Grant, yeah. a documentary about an hour long, um, Netflix, um, I think, or Amazon Prime, um, where he was going to LSD psychotherapy, where they gave smaller doses. So there were two main models to emerge from that first chapter, psycholytic psychotherapy, which is a small dose of LSD, almost subclinical, uh, to facilitate theoretically the unconscious processes we, we see in psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, into consciousness to facilitate that process. Then there's a psychedelic model, which was our model that we use today, and they used back then for cancer and alcoholism, which was a higher dose intentionally set to generate that peak experience, that mystical experience, that profoundly altered state of consciousness. Um, and Cary Grant had participated in, the, in the, the lower dose one and spoke to the day he died, how it changed his life. It's really poignant, by the way. I invite the listener to look it up. Very poignant things he wrote and said about it that he, um, until then, was just a, not a nice person, his words. He said, I, I quoted him at the beginning of my dissertation. He said, these days, everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Even Cary Grant wants to be Cary Grant. Because apparently right. he had these two personalities that he was like, he was in total conflict. And the way that he cited, he said the LSD therapy really brought it together. I, I forget his original name, like Theodore. Uh, right. right. So, so he brought these two together and kind of became his own autonomous self outside of the public's projections onto him. It's, it's, you know, we talked before about fame, one of your interests, your dissertation. Yeah. Um, I mean, because fame just crippled him. He had a traumatic childhood. Yeah. His mother, he was told, had died, but she really hadn't died. And, you know, it was a tough, a very traumatic childhood. Um, but he self-discloses. He was open about it. You can read it online, his narratives, that he was, uh, you know, he would say, he was, he was a son of a bitch. I was a womanizer. I wasn't nice to people, to women. I was... I was a self-obsessed bore of a person. I don't know. I mean, just incredible the language. Because for those who are younger in the audience, you know, it's hard to describe who Cary Grant would be today in today's zeitgeist. I mean, he would be, yeah. I don't know, the George Clooney on steroids. I mean, the, the guy. He was the right. actor. You know, you know, handsome, and he was like the guy. Um, and so he's self-disclosing 
these very human flaws that we're all struggling with as we walk this life publicly. And that these experiences, as you said, you know, beautifully, got, they can be integrated into a larger part of who he was. So there was that happening. And then the research took off in the 60s with mainly cancer and alcoholism. And then 1962 was a very well-known study that I alluded to before briefly, the Good Friday study out of uh, Marsh Chapel in, um, in Boston, where Houston Smith, among other students, had a psilocybin experience, guided by Walter Pankey, a great pioneer, supervised by Tim Leary. <laughs> um, and they found that experience in 90% of the, of the, of the takers mirrored the mystical experience we see throughout time. And that's when that scale became kind of developed and solidified, that mystical experience questionnaire, that these experiences, and about two thirds of the people today we find in our research can generate that powerful experience and they may have some incredible impact on, on who we are. And then through the 60s and then 1970, President Nixon uh, made the medicines illegal for the culture. They were legal then, legal in the culture, uh, but also uh, tragically, also made them out of the, you know, rendered them out of the hands of research. Mm -hmm. And that put a stop within a few years, it took to fully trickle down, but to a promising few decades of research. And never before nor after has a medicine been taken out of the hands of clinical research and healthcare and um, as a promising medicine because of a cultural phenomena. It would be like today, opioids being taken off the shelf of, you know, Opioids are a mainstay of, of modern medicine, even though there is an abusive component in the culture. Uh, and then nothing happened for decades um, until the reemergence with um, uh, some research on, on uh, what Strassman did in the 90s and, um, and then the clinical work with um, Hopkins and at NYU and Charlie Grove at UCLA with psilocybin with end of life dis distress. And now we're seeing this, you know, incredible flowering of of myriad applications, but that first, that first era is so exciting. Um, Albert Hoffman, uh, you know, then cultural figures like Alan Watts has spoken about it. Aldous Huxley, who was, I, I consider the godfather of the research. Um, he wasn't a researcher. Uh, he wrote and spoke about it beautifully. He, he developed his theory of a perennial philosophy that at the core of all the major religions is this mystic core. Uh, and that can be generated by these medicines. And the perennial philosopher, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, gets um, a bad rap sometimes, um, appropriately so. Critics will uh, accuse it of being kind of a, a watered-down, soupy, uh, milky thing of all religions. And um, I think that's a misreading of it. Um, they're all gorgeous uh, and different in their own frameworks. But it, and although they're very different, Amen Brahman, one god, Zen is no god, Taoism is very different. There does seem to be, according to the perennialists, and I, I support this, a common uh, essence that might be, uh, uh, that run through all of them in terms of this, although it gets manifested in very different languages. Um, and he pushed that forward in a very strong way. And um, it was a very heady era. And it affected, of course, our culture and the Beatles and all the, all the rest. So, uh, and then nothing for decades, and here we are in, in the re, uh, re-emergence. Joe, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm curious, you, uh, you being the great thinker you are, the perennial philosophy, it takes a lot of hits, doesn't it? Uh, and what it is and what it isn't. It, it does, but so I, I've talked to a lot of people about the um, spiritual but not religious community, and, and of course that's emerging 
in a in a large way now because you mentioned Pew studies. You know, we're seeing a lot of changes to organize religion, and people are frustrated by the dogma because I think we're thirsty for the essence. And I, I have heard a lot of critiques on perennialism, and I certainly align with it. And I I think that I guess my one critique is that oftentimes it takes out some of the the hard labor, what they call in the um, spiritual but not religious. Bill Bill Parsons introduced this idea to me, what they call the grocery store spiritualist or something that you just kind of pick and choose whatever. There is something to being to being in a container. Yep. And I think that another I forget who said this said that look if you're gonna if you're gonna dig dig one six foot deep hole when you're looking for water, not six one foot deep holes. <laughs> That's and great. and I, so I I think there's a paradox here, which is that yes, there is an, a, a kind of interior mystical essence, and yet I I'm behooved, maybe too strong, to go down a particular lane so that I can actually bounce up against the kind of shit that we need to bounce up to. When you're sitting in a Zen, uh, you, you know, you get whacked on the head when you do something. In a different container, you'll be guided in a different way, <laughs> maybe a little more gently. So, I, yeah, I, I certainly have back on my uh, what I kneel down to in my bookstore down here is the perennial. I could pull the perennials philosophy right now. But it, I, it makes sense to me intuitively, and you know, I, I think human beings are so connected at our core. It, it, an easy analog would be the the way culture manifests. I mean, while we have different cultures, we all have a culture, and so that's. Um, thanks, thanks for asking. I, I but I, I, I'm with you. I align uh, philosophically with with your uh, with your lane here, Tony. Yeah, no, it's intriguing, and 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 the and the, and the conversation is is uh, stimulating, and you're a good company. So I, I think it's both Ram Dass and Houston Smith who said what you just said. They're copying you, so be careful. Uh, I mean, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll turn litigious. <laughs> um, they, they both say what you said. I mean, Houston Smith famously would do a different religion for a period of years. He followed Islam for a while, and of course, Christianity. And and Ram Dass, I think, once said. You can't follow them all simultaneously. So pick one and dive deep into it. As long as there's knowledge that they're all connected, yeah. and that's where I think religion gets in trouble. So, yes, you're in your silo, and it's a way to dig deeper, the six foot hole, um, through the the wonderful lineage you're involved with. But if the if the experience is this is the only uh, six foot hole, and the other guys don't know what they're doing, then we got trouble. If it's we all meet at the same bottom, then it makes sense. Um, but yeah, the the buffet version of picking, you know, could be a bit shallow. Uh, mm -hmm. Although it's, you know, as I'm sure for you as well, it's fun to uh, integrate a few. I like them, but you know, it's almost nice. To, like after a, a deep stretch of months of a certain kind of maybe a Christian mystical lineage, then to kind of go to Zen for a bit is almost a you know a bit of a palate cleanser and get back into you know they're they're all they're all necessary. So. But that's a, that's a great point. Um, well, that's t Tony. That's my experience. I grew up, I would say, socially Christian, and there was more obligation obligation than anything. It was just kind of what you did. Right. But I never. I was more of a spiritualist, and I probably found religion in, uh, you know, late at night listening to music and. Um, uh, and and I think it would look like partying, but it was 
I, I was seeking something. I was seeking deep relationship and deep conversation and, and, and radical experiences and certainly art and creativity. But it wasn't until I found Buddhism and I started a, a pretty devout meditation practice that I found the beauty of contemplation and that I started to have those subjective experiences of what I would consider to be sacred, mystical events in very mundane, random, like walking from my car to a class when I looked up one day and saw a bird flying over and I just, something happened. Like, as that great saying is, you know, like, uh, enlightenment is an accident, but meditation or mindfulness makes you accident prone. That, 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 so now I'm able to approach Christianity from, I would consider, a much more mystical space and get into the contemplative aspects of it. And it also allows me to be really frustrated with a lot of the dogmatic bullshit yep. where there is that kind of colonialist, uh, you know, uh, complete identification with Christianity to the exclusion of all others, which doesn't make any sense to me. Right. So that that's a one thing I wanted to... Yeah, um, no, no, I, I mean, we were, we're in the same path there, same lane. Um, you know, for this word, Zen had a very powerful impact on my life, but it helped me inform my my own interest. And I think many he's in, in the other in the other paths, including Christianity. And of course, Christianity has this great Zen tradition called apophatic theology. Yes, uh, more well known to the Eastern Orthodox lineage, I guess. Um, but a similar kind of um, and uh, you know, I'm, I, I think you are too, uh, Thomas Merton. What a what a what a giant! And mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you know, for the listener as well, his, his works on Zen and the Birds of Appetite, one of the greatest books ever written, uh, I think. It's only a few pages, so I will mm -hmm. go out and buy it and, and finish it in a, well, it's pretty heady, so you, you won't finish it in a day. He's but dense. Not, but it's very small. Um, but he, he, you know, him and um, Suzuki, they, they bridged yeah. that. Um, and um, there's a great quote, and I <laughs> see, funny you should mention that. So I have a quote <laughs> This, this wasn't a plan, to, so I, I just. Um, but um, Thomas Moran says, um, "I will." Um, he talks about Zen as part of the Gospels. Here he's a, a modern mystic, Thomas Moran, this contemporary mystic who had a peak experience uh, on a street corner, um, and you know what a sad ending because who, who knows what he would have been? I, I think he would have truly helped bridge the insights of Buddhism and Christianity. He was on the yeah. cusp of doing that on his last trip before he passed away uh, integrated the two. Uh, and his Asia journal is gorgeous about that. But he talks about that. It seems to me that Zen is the very atmosphere of the gospels and the gospels are bursting with it. It is the proper climate for any monk, no matter what kind of monk he may be, I'll say, or she may be. Um, if I could not breathe Zen, I would probably die of spiritual asphyxiation and then he says in this incredible humble way, but I still don't know what it is. No matter. I don't know what the air is either. And then I will not be so foolish as to pretend to you that I understand Zen. And then from a Christian mystic, beautiful, to be frank, I hardly understand Christianity mm -hmm. by Thomas Burton. I mean, that sense of not knowing, that sense of that with Zen, I think, you know, clearly introduced to the world in a profound way. Um, and you're right, then you go back and, and you explore the other paths and they, they come to life in a new way as well. Uh, if you can get around all that, what you call the bullshit of all, it, it, it gets so crowded, yeah. <laughs> all the dogma that, I, you know, so it, it makes Zen, you know, feel so open. But um, 
No, no, you, you're right. But uh, and, and then how do you you know develop one path versus and simultaneously um, appreciate all the all the others as well? Uh, but it seems that's part of the sense of religion. It's hard to because people often ask. I'm sure they ask you, why do we need religion? Just connect with all that is the essence. If it's all conscious, whatever you know, even if it's divinity, why do we need the? Because it's hard to kind of be with just divinity. You know, we mm -hmm. these these forms became nice, become nice um, houses to live in to connect to the ineffable, right? As a way to, you know, so the Hindus have all these goddesses and gods. Uh, you know, you make love with them. They become personified. How do you make love to everything? So it gets personified for the human experience uh, as long as there's um, the insight that it's going to the same ineffable, transcendent, whatever we want to call it. Well, and I got to say, like when I started playing guitar, I didn't just spontaneously write my own shit. I was modeling them, mimicking them, trying that on. How do I do that? And we know that from a learning perspective, you know, like, let me mimic something else for a while until I find where my creativity is. So, and, and I'm not saying that I need to, I, I think that oftentimes the, 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 the dogma, which I don't see as a bad word. I think dogma, oh. Buddhists do a great job of saying dogma is a path. I need, I need a path. Yeah. And the, the dogma can become restrictive and confining when we start to fall into the belief pattern that that is it and not pointing, as you said earlier, the beautiful, like point, when I point to the moon, look at the moon, not my finger. And so religion, unfortunately, is a human, uh, a human dynamic that is, that is connected with divinity. And I think that, that we just sometimes, uh, what does Belatov say that, uh, the, the God of the horses is a horse we just forget that a lot a lot of times we can we are seeing our own reflection and and mistaking that for uh the beyond and uh, you know i think certainty is the is the issue here uh we've we've eradicated doubt which is why i think mystics are very comfortable not comfortable are more comfortable being in a state of unknowing than a lot of uh i would consider fundamentalists which have certainty on their side so to speak. Yeah, now you're and that you know you said doubt again. It's that dancing with doubt that's so intriguing and so powerful when you hear a mystic or a path yeah. talk about it, right? The, I mean, there's even Zen schools of you know you know doubt. They were right. called. Um, what was the great one quote? Um, great doubt. No, I'm sorry. Uh, it's it's no doubt. Great doubt. Great enlightenment. Small doubt. Small enlightenment. No doubt. No enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, like, that's part of the journey, you know, um, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's something, right, to, to surrender to the, is that, that's one of the, I guess, tools of it all. Um, if we can pick up this thread where we've done the tending to the timeline of psychedelics, and now it brings us up to date. So you started talking about 2016, uh, 2007, um, current day. I mean, you are at the epicenter of psychedelics in a, a kind of a curative model, or um, uh, certainly a scientific, but also also a religious model. And I, that's one question that I have to plant later, which is, uh, I'll just ask it now: Are you concerned about the medicalization and exclusively scientific application of psychedelics? 
that lose a certain religious sacramental aspect to it. And with that in mind, what's happening in the current context of psychedelics and, uh, and for example, the FDA and what's going on in that landscape? So let me address both. Uh, on the first one, and I'll, I'll maybe extrapolate a larger to, to say the spiritual aspects, not just religious, but yeah. the phenomenology of the experience. Yeah, it's, uh, I am. I mean, you know, it's an intriguing kind of tension between the two. So as a quick background, so the mystical experience isn't the only experience people can have. Um, um, we know that can be generated by, by psychedelics at a high enough level uh, that those high, 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 higher levels of dosing. But there's also other experiences clearly within the, within the experience. You know, one is kind of like a psychodynamically oriented biographical, autobiographical revisiting of one's life. And, and it's limitless, literally, you know, limitless what can come up um, and what can be therapeutic. Um, and maybe that gives me a moment just to say how we do the research. You know, there's yeah. weeks of preparation, getting to know the person and all the different clinical applications. Um, end of life, doing a life review and, you know, cultivating an intention, why they chose to be in the study, what they want from the experience, really crucial. Uh, the intention often can cultivate and direct the experience uh, to have that in mind and to keep it there. Uh, there is, um, the main guidelines are in these three weeks of preparation, two or three weeks of preparation um, on the day of the session that I'll describe in a moment to trust um, us, the therapists, uh, trust the medicine, as strange as that may sound, but most importantly, trust wisdom, consciousness, trust whatever's happening and to move in to the unfolding changes in consciousness, no matter what they are. Um, so sort of like an Vipassana meditative uh, technique, the, the, on the day of the session, they lie on a couch in a beautifully living room-like setting with flowers and art and beautiful rug. And they bring in their own items from their life, their own photographs of family or bookshelf rocks and things they like, any religious items or not, a baseball from uh, Mickey Mantle, you know, whatever they, what was important to them. And they adorn the room with their own materials and photographs. And they spend the day on a couch. Uh, most of the time, encouraged to lie down, wearing eye shades. And we're in headphones that plays a pre-selected six hour track of music, mainly classical and background music to help support the trajectory of the experience. Um, and the purpose of both is also to tune out consensus reality, all the stimuli that all this is and direct att attention um, inward into consciousness. And it's very dramatic. It can come on strong and a lot can come up. People can revisit various aspects of their, of their life, including traumatic experiences, clinical vignettes, interpersonal memories. They could have profound, you know, more esoteric or transpersonal imagery. They could have dark imagery. They could have challenging moments. And again, the main guidance, go into whatever's coming up. Whatever arises, look at it, move into it, engage it. How do I learn from this? Why is this coming up in my mind? <laughs> um, uh, by running from it, it only can fuel the anxiety. Uh, and people in these studies, as um, dramatic as this may sound, uh, will experience death arising. And we would actually instruct them in advance, even if that arises, move into it. Go ahead and die. You're not going to die. No one's going to die on the couch that day. Um, but by going into the experience, uh, they cultivate, typically, I, I've never seen a case where this didn't happen in the end, 
inside of some kind of transformative um, experience. By moving into it, it changes into this learning experience, which is a lesson for us all in life, right? right. By being with the presently, present unfolding. And so that's the guidance for the day. And they spend you know, the bulk of the day on this couch and there are breaks where they have to go to the restroom and get a glass of water. And we're, we're there, there's two guides, typically a male and a female, uh, supporting them, assisting them in very dark, challenging stretches, holding their hand, assuring them they're safe, their body is safe, they're medically safe, remind them they're on their medication and they're in this temporarily altered state. Um, and it's a very powerful day and we can come back to this. And then the day ends around 4 or 5 p.m. and they're back in ordinary consciousness, remarkably. And then they go home and then there's weeks of you know follow-up and what's called now integration, which is simply a, a discussion of the experience and, and finding ways to apply that in a real way. So it doesn't remain an isolated experience, but a part of their life. Um, and so um, that's, that's how the model works in this high dose model. And, um, and here we are, so I forget where we're going, but in terms of the current uh, scene, and now there are applications in, in many, many clinical uh, arenas. So we're continuing end of life and palliative care. Um, a colleague of mine, Charlie Grove and I are developing a multi-site palliative care trial, uh, still about a year away from uh, clinically being on the ground. Um, there are studies in, um, in addiction and alcoholism and uh, possibly opiate use, um, anorexia, eating disorders, uh, uh, depression, uh, PTSD. They're using MDMA, a bit of a different compound, but um, we're even looking at, you know, assumed to be not published yet, so it's still under wraps a bit, but a study looking at the spiritual experiences or the experiences of um, religious leaders and um, Again, kind of getting at the phenomenology of the experience. So in a, in, a, in a fast sweep, that's kind of the current landscape. Very exciting. More and more trials being developed. FDA is very supportive uh, when they're done right. I mean, these are very carefully written protocols and the FDA and the various medical centers have been supportive of these studies. And we're seeing uh, this you know, flowering of, of research and, and of uh, money coming in from private sector mainly to support it. Mm -hmm. uh, government hasn't yet uh, publicly financially supported it, although they clinically support the research so far. Regarding your question, as the field grows, um, there, there are, there are these, all these experts people could have on the medicine. There's also ways of looking at it. And uh, going back to your first question, there are now a, a wonderful neuroscientific inquiry developing what's happening within the brain during these experiences. Um, so you have fMRIs and PET, you know, imagery and imaging going on to look at what's happening in the brain when someone is on a psychedelic like LSD or, or psilocybin. Um, and uh, that is important. You know, how does the brain shift a bit? What, what changes? And we know we've done it for decades in, in a large way what changes in one way. It's, it works along serotonergic pathways and certain receptors in the serotonergic um, receptor family. Um, but now there's more research, you know, what could it be? And um, and to get to the point to your question, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a risk uh, and everyone wouldn't agree with this because there are different kind of outlooks on it, but that a biological reductionist um, paradigm or outlook could squeeze out, uh, uh, again, what's happened to religion 200 years ago, 2000 years ago, not that this is a religion by any stretch of the imagination, but could squeeze out the, the, 
the phenomenology of the experience. There's even some researchers, and it's very interesting, I support all research, who say maybe it's not the psychedelic experience that matters. Maybe it's not the memory of the experience, that it's just something happening biologically only. And if we can cultivate, design a molecule that won't have that experience, but it will still change the person. I have to be frank, I don't fully understand that. Some very smart people are, are advancing that theory. Could we develop a molecule that doesn't have the four hour mystical or peak or profound altered state with these insights and, and teachings and resets? Um, and could it just be a biological phenomenon? I don't, I don't get that. Um, maybe in, in cases where it's a, a symptom like OCD or a certain, even addiction for a time being, it might reframe the biological foundations of addictive or obsessional behavior, but regarding depression and anxiety and end of life and these other broader clinical indications, it, it seems apparent that it's the memory of the experience that's changing the person. And, and that's where this dramatically changes from most all medication. And I think this is the takeaway of the research. This is the paradigm shift. Unlike every other medication or most that people are on, anti-anxiety, antidepressant, pain, whatever people are on, including cholesterol, the medication works while you take it day to day. Mm -hmm. So daily taking of the medicine produces a desired effect. In terms of anxiolytic or the antidepressant, it's clipping some of the, it's quieting the symptoms of the edges of depression or anxiety to make it more, it could, it could function and it quiets down that part. The psychedelic experience is so different. One, you take it once or twice. So there isn't an ongoing biological change. Um, and equally, if not more importantly, you dive into the, to the problem. You move into the suffering. It alters the relationship to suffering. As Jung, you once said, they asked him, what, what does psychotherapy do? Does it, immediately, does it relieve all suffering? He goes, no, no, it just changes your relationship to it. Um, so even end of life, end of life, if the entire panoramic field is one of death, with a profound transcendent experience, you may see that, that, that sphere of suffering in a much larger landscape. It isn't the entire landscape, it's part of it. There's something more beyond even the suffering that we experience. And these experiences, the whole point of them therapeutically is to have the patient move into the suffering. Whatever it is, earlier trauma, insecurity, end of life, addiction, whatever comes up and the wisdom of the consciousness seems to be have a self-healing mechanism. What comes up is coming up, move into it and learn from it. That seems to be what cal recalibrates people. Um, but there is this other model, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, there is that tension. And um, I, I think in a material world, that gets a lot of attention. You know, fMRIs and PET scans, it's, it's a sexy headline and an important one. Uh, I'm not minimizing neuroscience in any way because um, the brain is incredible. And how do we better understand why it changes, why it shifts like that? And how can we better develop ways to understand it? Um, but as to the, the causation or the, whatever's changing this person's outlook on depression or end of life or whatever it is, addiction, it seems to be the memory of the experience. Um, it'd be hard for me to understand that I'm willing to be taught that a four hour change in biology would have a decades long change in a person's life. Mm -hmm. But there we go. It's, it's really interesting, uh, this landscape. That makes it's, sense? Sorry. It, that makes tons. Sense. It, and it seems like the same, I mean, this is obvious, but the, it seems like the same arguments that are that have been ongoing in the world of consciousness are happening here, of course. You have a deterministic 
epiphenomenal kind of understanding of what our subjective experience is, or something else, something where idealism and maybe dual aspect theories tend to come online, which I've been exploring for a number of years, but of course it's going to manifest in this landscape. So, so you've talked about materialism a, a bit, and it, obviously I, I know where you hang your hat, or I imagine I, I know where you hang your hat, which is, uh, it seems like to me that, and I, I don't I don't want to be totally dualistic here, but it seems to me that a lot of materialistic philosophical folks don't have any room for the other experiences. But when you get into kind of dual aspect theory or certain aspects of idealism, they can live in harmony next to mm -hmm. There's like space made for everybody to coexist. Yeah. So I just think philosophically, I want to be a part of the team that's saying like, Hey, let's all coexist and make sense. And you need to do your neuroimaging and your studies and that's valuable. And you know, we're, we're yours actually sits nicely in this worldview and we can help each other and scratch each other's backs. Just beautifully. I mean, yeah. how is how are they, how are they not one of the same thing? Right. Right. So I agree. I mean, the, the, the vision, the artificial division, is a problem. Uh, squeezing one or the other out is a bigger problem. I mean, to, for, you know, they both are included. Without the brain, understanding the brain, we're not going to have the experience. Um, but let's not minimize the experience. It seems in most of the applications, um, you know. And again, these experiences that people are speaking about. I stood outside of time. I stood outside of time. I watched samsara, I watched the unfolding of, 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 of time, whatever that is. Um, I saw beyond uh, my cancer. I experienced love, the deepest uh, aspects of love, which is a very common feature that it was very touching to me to hear people over and over and all the sites, all the trials, this aspect of love comes up, loving kindness towards self, uh, towards others. Um, forgiveness, I mean, people will report a memory um, or, not only coming up in that session, but they knew about a, a trauma going back 50 years, someone abused them or uh, awfully uh, assaulted them, forgiving that person. I mean, because through the transcendent function, they see the, the, the layer, they put a lens back, so to speak, and see the layers of how that person got to where they are. And they, you know, that doesn't uh, rationalize it, but it explains or why. I see now their, their lifetimes of influence, they would say, and why he or she is in that position and why they did this to me. And I could cultivate forgiveness because we're all, you know, doing the best we can. Um, you, you hear that over and over. And then you hear this larger, which, you know, I think will speak to you as, as much as it does to me. This, they speak of a larger love. I always, you know, as a good, as a proud Greek American, the word agape, this kind of divine sense of that that's what the whole ground of being is made of. And that's a very uh, comforting piece to them. So, you know, these vignettes is very stunning. And we, we, were, we published a paper last year, um, our team, uh, and four and a half years later, the people who were surviving with the cancer were re-interviewed. And again, these incredible quotes coming up over and over, and I could read a few later about how it changed my life, connecting with and connectedness and connecting with love and forgiveness, and I see my life in a much larger way. And I will save a few minutes to read some later. Uh, over and over. And so it's hard for many of us to exclude that experience. I can't see that happening without the experience. Um, right. But again, to, to, to support you on that, uh, it's all part of it. It's all part of it. Um, you're, you're actually getting to where I'm, I'm conscientious of time, and I want to be, uh, I'm so grateful for your generosity here. 
but it does seem we're on the same we're in the same lane again, Tony. I it does seem like story is a really good place for us to close or at least to begin to close because it it, it that is subjectivity that is mythology that that is the whole entire arena that we that little blips on a screen don't include in our name we can story that story but that therein lies the issue you know we 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 do need to connect to what is happening subjectively so i'd love for you to share some of those stories if you would that we hear sure i'll read you some quotes and speaking of stories it's um it's so interesting what many people speak about in their experience later so after the experience they an ideal session, there isn't too much talking. We encourage them in advance. If you're experiencing things, don't need to report to us. Just be with it, go into it. If you need us, let us know. We check in periodically. How are you doing? Everything okay? Usually it's like, get away from me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing fine. Don't, don't talk to me. Um, but then later we, we talk about it. We, 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 we hear their story, the word story. And so often it's incredible. And People have often asked, what can we glean from these experiences that, that happen in non-ordinary consciousness to everyday life, to everyday psychotherapy? And one of them is this, there's many, but one of they report developing a non-attachment, Buddhist term, to a lot of things, suffering, but also to the stories they tell themselves and a little mm -hmm. mythology. And even I, I picture like a solar system, they'll talk about see the little stories, you know. I'm weak, I'm not attractive, I'm a shitty tennis player, I'm, I'm a poor, I'm not, whatever, you know, whatever, all the stories you tell each other. Tennis player would be a good one if that was your worst one. Um, and all these little stories, and you realize that that's not me. These are stories I tell myself, and they see them, they experience them as drifting away from them. I, I have all these little mythologies and stories, or death will be this, or I'm a bad person, or whatever it is. Um, and they realize, I just tell myself these stories. They're not just me. Um, that's remarkable. I know it's not where you were going with the question because I want to read you actual stories, but that's stunning to hear people detach from the negative automatic uh, scripts they have and to see them, I'm something more. You know, as things fall away, their experiences, their identities, even their physical bodies, Ram Dass once spoke famously about that. You know, what's left, if it all falls away, what's left? And that's the exciting part, but challenging part of the journey. If it's all falling away, including this body, uh, that could induce panic. Um, but in these guided sessions or these supported sessions, we're there to help them go towards it. Let's see what's left. You know, everything's fading away. What's left? And, you know, very often they talk about something very um, incredible being left, <laughs> such as love. Um, that's our essence. But um, that idea of uh, detachment from all these neurotic little things not that you know you come back and they're all gone but you change your relationship to them which again young i i don't know if someone paraphrased him or he once said it but someone i think as i said earlier said to him what is the point of psychoanalysis of psychotherapy and not to alleviate suffering but just to change your relationship to it and this does that including death um so the stories are, are all very touching um i'll read a few quotes from this recent study um there's so many. I mean, there's so many vignettes, and there's hundreds of cases at all the different sites, and and each one is more profound than the other. I mean, personal stories of forgiving others in their life, um, loving, be easier on themselves. These larger transpersonal insights as to what life or death might be. Um, sense of renewed compassion. But let me read a few quotes. This is a recent study that Gabby Aguilera is one of our team. Um, 
the lead author on last year. And this is after um, four and a half years, people recontacted and we re-administered the measures. And we found again, almost five years later, that depression, anxiety, demoralization, hopelessness still stay down and still had an increased sense of spiritual being and the survivors, many have over two thirds have since passed away from the cancer. In full disclosure, it's not a perfect um, design in the end because by five years, a lot of other things have happened in their life. So we were aware of that, but still we see this dramatic sustainability of the insights. But more importantly is these, is these vignettes. I'll read just three or four um, examples. One person says, five years later, and you can imagine their first stories, which were incredible. It gave me a different perspective on my life and has helped me to move on with my life and not focus on the possibility of the cancer recurring. This is from a person in remission. I found the greater awareness of a spiritual connection to the universe or the, of the profound beauty of nature. Another person wrote, it's hard to explain, something in me softened. And I realized that everyone is just trying to do the best they can, even me, and that matters since we're all connected. Another person wrote, there's a reckoning, this is very touching, which came with my cancer. And this reckoning was enhanced by the psilocybin experience. I have a greater appreciation, a sense of gratitude for being alive, often as a very major theme, just to be here with gratitude for the one life, even the one, one short life. Once the thought that cancer is part of your life becomes woven into the fabric of your being, you realize that this or something similar awaits many others who are unsuspecting, who are unsuspecting, period. This compels you to relate to everyone from the perspective of compassion due to the changeable and temporary nature of our sense of who we think we are. And I love this, radical change is just around the corner, regardless of how certain we are of our current state. We are children in our understanding of life until something reaches deep into your heart and announces itself. I understand the life process to be one of realization of a divine nature. This does not mean any supernatural creature. It is a process of remembrance. One person wrote, the experience reinforced, the psilocybin experience reinforced the understanding that we are all very much together, that the prevailing feeling in the end is one of love. And this, these go on and on. I've off, I often read from Patrick Metes. Uh, he was a, a, a volunteer I guided uh, who passed away, a um, young guy in his 50s, um, who introduced his wife, Lisa, to Michael Pollan. He wrote about him in his book and his New Yorker article. And he wrote um, all, so beautifully, he was a journalist, about his experience. He died a year after the session. Um, and he had a, his birth, his death, rebirth experience, this remarkable experience people report having this ego death and we and then being born and being born anew so to speak I mean I think that's probably what the Christian to be born again means to be born again and see life differently um or to quote that which now got extra um new support from Brian Muresco's book the great St. Paul inscription um if you die before you die then you won't die when you die he is one of those but which I won't go into because um but he wrote about love a lot from here on, he wrote, love was the only consideration, meaning his experience. Everything that was seen or heard centered on love. It is the only purpose. This wasn't some hippy-dippy guy. This was a regular button-down, you know, regular person. Um, love seemed to emanate from a single point of light. It was so pure. The sheer joy, the bliss, indescribable. 
In fact, there are no words to accurately capture my experience, my state of this place. I've had no earthly pleasures come close to this feeling. No sensation, no image of beauty, nothing during my time on earth has felt as joyful and pure and glorious as the height of this journey. And he had a great life. He owned restaurants, he was a musician, he was a well-known journalist. Part of his experience was, and I'll, I'll close in a moment, he went into his lungs. Often people go into their lungs and the smoke and cessation trials at Hopkins, people see the damage they're doing. And there's the insight, what the hell am I doing? I had this one life and this one incredible life on this planet, circling the sun. I mean, how did I get here? What is this? And I'm going to shorten it by smoking these, 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 uh, these cancer sticks, as we called them in the old days. He took a tour of his lungs and he says, I saw my cancer. I could see some things, but as a matter of feeling, he had, he had metastatic cancer at this point. But I was being told without words to not worry about the cancer. It's minor in the scheme of things, simply a physical imperfection. It's unimportant. The real work to be done, done is before you, love. And he closes, it was a long, long journal, but he closed it by saying, my life has changed in ways I may never fully understand, but I have an understanding now, an awareness that goes beyond intellect, that my life, that every life and all that is the universe equals one thing, love. Patrick reported that experience as the single most spiritual experience of his life, which we is one of the measures we use, and the top, top five most meaningful. Uh, and we hear that over and over. And these are people who have had wonderful lives, having had children, having, you know, a lot of meaningful things have happened. And this always gets ranked in most people um, up in the top single or five most important experience. What is that? Why is this within us? These are questions we all have. What is that? You take this medicine and changes consciousness. That happens naturally as well. Let's not forget that. And this is available to us. Um, so th those stories are incredible. And then how they people, I mean, he died a year later. Lovely white Lisa was very supportive. Um, of the work and to his death, they both attributed his, his, his dying well, as best you can, to the experience. He didn't wanna leave his life or his wife or this world, but he wasn't afraid any longer. Um, and we hear that um, many times, and we hear it now in other disorders, people's PTSD just, you know, is recalibrated. People um, stop smoking cigarettes. The, the experience has such an impact. Um, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting time for this research. And we all hope it goes well to come back to your question of the FDA. And they're very supportive, but some of us, all of us, do worry about the cultural landscape. Yeah. Well, 50 years ago or more, this was, they were, first of all, they were legal, um, but the research was very conventional. It could have revolutionized psychiatry, peer reviewed studies, hundreds of papers, good outcomes. Cary Grant is, uh, is using it. And then over, Done. decades. Could that happen again? I'm not gonna answer that. Maybe it could. Um, it behooves us, the researchers, and what we're doing, proper, ethical, sober research, FDA-approved clinical trials for safety, efficacy, to create a model that works one day if it's rescheduled for everyone to use in a prescription basis. Um, at specialized centers, not to go to your CBS and get a medicine, mm -hmm. but Ideally, it'd be in centers with trained guides to spend a week or two, have the sessions and return to your home like they did at Eleusis, like Hoffman's vision of the Eleusinian mysteries. But the current, you know, landscape with so much going on, it worries some, it's worrisome sometimes that something could go sideways or south. 
there's some bad events somewhere that aren't being well controlled, and that could put a pause or a freeze on the research, which would be just awful um, as uh, we pursue this carefully designed FDA-supported research. So it's an interesting, but in some ways, tenuous time. I'm glad somebody's leading the charge, Tony. It's, yeah, I, my concern might, you mentioned Eleusis, and I mean, I want that. Yep. You know, I want that kind of space. I guess part of my concern is that the medicalization piece gobbles it all up and yep. people are unable to have those kinds of um, connected with nature in surroundings that aren't so regulated and controlled. Um, but I but I do know that they need to be held with reverence and with an attitude of the sacred, which is not the rave. It's, it. I mean, again, there are values to that kind of Dionysian experience, but when we're talking about this, we're talking about approaching it as a sacrament and as something that is sacred. And so my, my hope is that's where we're heading. Yeah. And it need not be that language. I, I mean, I appreciate you using that language, of course. But for some people, that rings a certain kind of bell. So we don't need that language. I mean, the, the famous astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, on the way back from the moon in Apollo 14, had a mystical experience, peak right. experience, naturally. And he spent, the, you know, he wasn't taking mushrooms on the space capsule. And he spent the rest of his life, the next 40 years, developed an institute of noetic sciences to, to explore consciousness. Um, so we can use secular language, which is what we use in science. I mean, shifts in consciousness, uh, experience, you know, these, these incredible uh, shifts and with... Um, the various vignettes they have, what are they graphical, this peak experience condition. Um, or you can describe it in the ways you just did, sacred, and which I often do and I did today. Um, but it, you know, it's it's all of it, right? There's a great, you know, Hindu uh, word, neti neti, you know that where um, it's uh, people ask, well, what is God? What is consciousness? And neti neti means not this, not that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's always the elusive, um, <laughs> the elusive thing, the, the, the Tao, the unnameable. Yeah. The, the, those who could name the Tao are naming the Tao, you know, the, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, what's, what's the, uh, the Vedic thing, the, the more one learns, the less one knows that George Harrison used that for the inner light. Um, yeah. George Harrison, great, great, great model for this, uh, using it in a very serious way to change his life, actually. Um, so yeah, it doesn't matter the language we use, um, uh, but it's about that whatever is consciousness is so beyond our understanding. And you know, the bottom line seems to be these medicines temporarily in a safe setting, if the person supported can produce changes that seem so far to alleviate suffering and produce insights into the possibility of what, you know, what this is. And that's, it's a great way to end and it's a great introduction for the next 50 years or 100 years you know where yeah. where do we go with this and let's hope it stays on track um uh as as we move forward it's really a very interesting and exciting time well where do you want to direct people tony in closing where what, what would you like to let people know about <laughs> um no one to direct them to <laughs> to the meditation cushion <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's as good a spot as any, man. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I have nothing to 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 put out there now. Um, uh, I will say, you know, I mean, people are obviously keeping track of all the, the research and all the the media of it. Um, 
to look at it carefully. Be careful of, you know, sometimes it gets sensationalized. Um, wanted to keep in mind for the audience, we hear so much about psychedelics. There's the impression, it leaves the impression, it's everywhere and it's even legal. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there aren't that many trials going on. There aren't, we're still kind of in the early stages. So a bit of humility about where we are. Um, and, um, and excitement. I hope uh, people stay abreast of the research of the clinical trials. Um, and, uh, you know, I imagine that, I mean, it's changed dramatically in the last two years. Right. We began the research in 2008, nine or so. We were FDA approved and approved by the hospital, but it was like, it was like, we can't even talk about it. Literally, we were afraid, you know, whatever would happen. And now of course it's everywhere. So I would, I would just be ask people to be careful. Um, and um, as we move forward and um, yeah, uh, thank you for having me and talking about this. I know you've had a few people on over the weeks or months or year who've talked about these um, experiences and the medicine that really is, um, it really is intriguing. It really is intriguing. Tony, you're a joy to get to know, man. I appreciate you a lot. Appreciate you. This is a delight. I look forward to the continuation of this uh, conversation offline. <laughs> yeah, more to come offline. <laughs> um, and, and to your show, I mean, I, I want to give a shout out to your show. This wasn't a plant. You didn't make me say this, but you're such a, a good interview. You, you, you're, you know, we were talking before about how many podcasts there are out there, and it does take a degree of dignity and integrity and a, a sober look at a topic and a, and a depth-oriented look to make it survive and you're clearly cultivating that in this incredible space and um your your list of guests are just profound so thank you for this opportunity and for this model and um i guess we could tell people that you know no more no more use bookstores but i'm glad you have the bottom shelf there um but i have memories i'm sure you do too i'm literally going i'm a little, I'm a little older than you so but go to those bookstores and it was the same thing wherever you went it was that back bookshelf Drop to your knees. <laughs> and on the bottom shelf was a little, you know, copies of Be Here Now and of uh, whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> Let me see. I'm going I'm to I'm grab one for you. I'm going to find one. Oh, here, here you go. There, there's a good one for you. Here it comes. There, there it is. There he is. Um, there he is. Uh, so, um, yep, that was the bottom shelf. Now it's everywhere. It's remarkable to think of pre-internet, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That does seem to be, now I'm going offline, so you, you can edit this out later. But it is up some, as I get older, I have an increasingly romanticized outlook of that, what I call a golden period of, like post-World War II until the internet, maybe even the 80s, for so much, I mean, of music, of art, of movies, there's kind of this period, a lot, a lot of hardship in the world, but of that of that era uh, yeah. of uh, that until now it all changed dramatically with digital and all, all the implications of all this but that's um it's it's kind of it's, it's you know increasingly receding into the into the into history of pre-internet world and um robert we, robert johnson wrote about the shadow in his book owning your shadow owning your own shadow and he said that um it would take a staff of people to manage a current day household. And because we rely on technology so much, we lose touch with, with our experience. And I, I think, you know, we can't stop this train, but we can do things to reconnect with the process where we're not leaning too heavily on 
um, on technology. One of the ways I do this is I hand grind on my coffee in the morning. And yeah. I, it's, I just want to be connected viscerally with the process. I don't want any other thing to do it for me. <laughs> but I'm happy that you and I get to connect from New York to Houston in the way that we are. That's your problem. Well, um, and I agree. And that's another podcast you'll have with somebody on, you know, what is this whole digital age doing to our interconnectedness and spirituality? And yeah. clearly there's a promise there. Um, we're walking around with uh, every every piece of knowledge written available to us on a little device. Um, that's right. But clearly there's um, there's some potential harm here, obviously, um, and what it's doing to us. But um, thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. What a joy. I really appreciate you. Control.